Hello, and welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I am your host, Natalie Brown, and thank you so much for joining me as we continue to explore the fields of sound healing, sound therapy, generally the use of sound for health and wellness. Today, our guest is Michelle Perret, and we have really a heartfelt conversation about her journey, uh, what she calls her origin story into sound work. And she comes from a background as a performing artist, uh, classical ballet, a jazz musician, theater, um, really a wealth of musical experience, and a lot of studying and traveling all over the world. So an amazing journey that eventually led her to the therapeutic use of sound, initially for her own self-care, self-healing. Her father passed away and her mother uh, was dealing with grief and then early onset Alzheimer's and and, uh, was working through, um, you know, the later stages of life with dementia. And Michelle was using sound, was using uh, crystal bowls and, and her voice to um, to help her mom uh, uh, during uh, end of life. So we talk quite a bit about using sound for end of life, um, using sound for our own transformation and self-care. We get into uh, this blossoming field of sound healing and things to be aware of for, uh, for people, uh, whether we're new or have been in this community for a long time. So we have a really a nice conversation as well about the current sound field that we're in and also her experiences working in luxury resorts uh, and spas and some really amazing opportunities she's had and at the end of this podcast or if you're watching on video you'll see the video of her uh, playing her bowls and singing and she has a very unique way of incorporating um, well-known songs uh, sometimes pop songs sometimes from um, a traditional uh, music or the Great American Songbook. Um, she uses her voice, her, her very uh, you know trained and wide range of using the voice with alchemy bowls. So please enjoy uh, that very special um, video or audio uh, at the end of this podcast. Sounds Heal Podcast is sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa, located in Sarasota, Florida, or you can find them on the web at theohmshop.com. They are the United States' largest showroom of vibrational tools, and crystal bowls, Himalayan singing bowls, gongs, um, and a lot of really unique instruments as well that you can't find anywhere else. They have custom instruments, and they're extremely helpful If you're looking for something in particular, need some advice, um, they're extremely helpful. So check them out online. You can see their products there if you can't make it to Florida. Um, And they also have trainings and workshops uh, in person as well. So thank you so much to the Ohm Shop and Spa for their sponsorship of this podcast. And please enjoy this episode with Michelle Perret. Okay, great. So Michelle, we're going to start with your background. We're going to kind of explore, you know, um, you've had a lifetime as a performing artist, 
So yeah. before we get into the work you do now as a, a sound practitioner, maybe just tell us a little bit about what was influ- influential in your background and kind of highlights of your musical and artistic background. Yes. In um, articulating my origin story, I was really going through my own personal timeline, trying to find the linear through line of the earliest experiences that influenced my work relating to the therapeutic use of sound. And the recurring theme was how it saved my life in so many ways. So there was a lot of trauma for me in early childhood, um, growing up one of four in a family just outside of New York City. Um, My sisters were always at each other's throats and (laughs) it was very frightening and tumultuous to, to grow up in that way. And I found very early on, I would go into the walk-in closet and climb into the hamper, spending a lot of time in the hamper by myself as a perfect place of solitude and a place where I could sing. And that was my self-soothing, singing. But it also, I discovered the connection to one's breath. So as a child, I was completely obsessed with the illusionist and the escape artist, Harry Houdini, who was known for holding his breath for three and a half minutes. So as a child, it was my goal to beat Harry Houdini's record. And I would do this a lot, practicing and trying to beat that record almost to the point of passing out which I don't think I ever did, but it got pretty close. But I remember the release. Once you take that breath, it's the sound of your heartbeat that is so strong. It's the pulse, hearing your heartbeat. And I learned very young how to work with that. And that became a sound for comfort and for rooting myself amongst chaos. Um, I remember laying in bed as a little girl and I would always throw my pillows and my mother's like, why, why are you always throwing your pillows? And I'd say, they're too loud. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, there's a, there's a beat in them. There's something she had to tell me that was my own heart. It was my own heartbeat. So I learned to make friends with that sound. And again, it it became my comfort. It became my home base for checking in with myself. And when I look at it now, I guess it was my own form of meditation of really getting to the point where you can silence, you can quiet the mind enough that you really can then hear your own heartbeat. Um, yeah, so you realized at a, a young age that you were just really sensitive to yeah. sound, to even hear your inner sounds and just kind of yeah. like really tune in. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
it got me through a lot of hard chapters and the relationship to the breath and singing, which truly was, I mean, as far back as I could remember, three, four years old, the first thing I did when I woke up, I'd still be in bed. I'd open my eyes and just start singing. Just start singing under the covers, just start singing. For hours, I'd sing entire albums from start to finish, Ella Fitzgerald, The Carpenters, Judy Garland, The Sound of Music, Oliver. I just remember my sisters always screaming, shut up, shut up, make her shut up. And my father really taking a stand saying, no, let her sing, keep singing. I think eventually I would navigate outside and it was always that beautiful morning time before the sun comes up where it's still, there's that anticipation in the air of the sun rising. And I would begin to sing with the sun rising and listening deeply as a child to the birds. And I got very good at being able to mimic bird calls and be in conversation with the birds for for hours, hours and hours. And it's interesting because I, that is something I use in my work now, um, bird calls. I, I, I do that a lot. That's something I weave into a session. Yeah. So singing with the birds. <laughs> singing with the birds. Yeah. So many, um, medicine melodies from nature right right There's so much out there Absolutely. well so yeah I'm curious uh were your parents uh kind of influential and in you getting uh into training you know whether it was singing lessons or ballet or theater was that kind of your choice or, or how did that kind of come about in childhood it was my choice it's 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 an interesting story we had a piano a wonky piano that was half broken. So half the keys were broken. I think our neighbor gave it to us because they were moving. <laughs> but my parents didn't want to invest in a new piano until they knew somebody was going to use it. So we had this busted up piano that I would sit at downstairs and find the beauty in this broken instrument. And for all of the notes that didn't work, I learned to fill that in with my voice. So it was actually very early music training that I was giving myself without knowing it, of really learning the relationship of the notes to each other and, and of learning scales. Um, and actually, probably even when I think about it now, was probably my earliest introduction to, to um, microtonality of singing the white and the black keys and everything in between them. So yeah, it was that out of tune piano that really was a great teacher for me. And eventually we did get a, a new piano, um, which I have in my apartment in, now in New York. It's like my, my friend. Um, yeah, so, but I remember very young, I 
had auditioned for um, a show in New York and the director came over to me. I was probably 10 and the director said to me, we love your voice. You had to sing in the show. He goes, we love your voice, but you need to study. You need voice training. And, and we have, you know, we work with our coach and blah, 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 blah. So I went home and my father's like, well, you have to make a choice. Because I had been bugging him for a year about wanting to take ballet class. And he said, you have to make a choice. Do you want to sing or do you want to dance? Because we can't afford both. <laughs> and I chose ballet. Um, I started very late, probably around age 12, which is very late for that rigorous study, but I was very dedicated and jumped right in. Within a year, I was studying at the Boston Ballet School, and then I went on to, I was able to leave home and go to the San Francisco Ballet School at 13, 14 years old, and then 15 years old, I auditioned for Balanchine School of American Ballet, which is the training ground for New York City Ballet. And I was there going to high school in New York, training, dancing eight hours a day. But again, the importance of that story is I found early on how to be inside the music as a dancer. You don't want to dance on top of the music. You want to be inside of the music and have that be an extension of your own body. I remember at one point, where it was crystallized for me. I was at the bar, the ballet bar, not, not the liquor bar, the ballet bar, realizing that this routine became my sanctuary. This routine of connecting with the breath, connecting with the sound, connecting with the music and having that move through the body became the safest space for me and a place where I really could thrive. Um, at one point, I remember I had three stress fractures and I was in so much pain. But when you're in a competitive ballet school like that, you don't really want to admit that you're injured. So I kept trying to work through it, kept trying to dance through it. And what allowed me to do that was that connection to sound. Because if I was in it deeply enough, it would distract me from my own physical pain. It would turn off the pain sensor to a point. I don't know how I did that. I mean, when I think about it, I was 15 years old. Um, it's really mind over matter. And sound and the relationship to music propelled me to, to find my way through that. Um, eventually, I got to the point where I was too injured and had to stop and had surgery to repair my foot. And unsuccessfully, it, it wasn't a good surgery and it ended my career early. Um, and that too was you know, devastating to have lost something so young. Um, right. And something that you had, I mean, really put yourself fully into, and especially at that age, mm. um, 
What was that like realizing that that's not what it was going to be, what you were going to be doing? Tremendously painful. To the point where I could no longer listen to the music that I loved. I could no longer listen to Ravel and Chopin and Stravinsky, music that I listened to every day. You know, I always did my homework to Vladimir Horowitz, Chopin, like I just, I had to just turn my head because it was so painful to even feel that world. I couldn't watch ballet. I couldn't, it was so painful. And there was such a tremendous sense of failure for me, um, even though it was beyond my control. And I remember I had to finish high school and, you know, that's the age 16, 17, 18 years old, where all of your classmates are now getting into ballet companies, you know, New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, and I'm having to sit on the sidelines and just figure out where, what do I do from here? Where do I go? Um, I remember there was this store. Um, very close to Lincoln Center on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I used to cut school sometimes and stay in this store. And it was this store called Star Magic, which was completely devoted to all things metaphysical. I mean, they had books on sacred geometry and ancient Egypt and they sold tuning forks and they had Himalayan singing bowls and I remember just spending a lot of time there. And it was also the music that they played. It was probably the first time I was ever exposed to ambient music and avant-garde music, which was beautifully curated um, on these playlists that they had in the song in the store, you know, listening to Zanakis and Pauline Oliveros and um, John Cage and Steve Reich and Philip Glass. And because I have synesthesia, for me, it was a way that woke my mind up. Although my body couldn't quite dance to this new music yet, my mind, could see it in colors. My experience was this was seeing things in in multicolored. It was just a beautiful escape for me and my mind during that that transition with the injury. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to to remember that. Um, it was the most amazing store. Um, but it was also a point where I began collecting film scores. Uh, Bernard Herman, Ennio Morricone, Max Steiner, James Horner, John Williams, and really relating to this music because of where it took my mind. So again, it could ease my physical pain. It could ease my emotional pain when I connected 
deeply to the music and got inside the music. Um, when I was 19, I was offered a job as a choreographer and it was working for a hotel, believe it or not. And it was a French company and I was able to approach dance from a different way. I wasn't out in the front having to perform. I was staging their nightly entertainment using non-dancers <laughs> trying to make them look good. But it started my love of, of the hotel environment and working within that world. I was able to live and work in the West Indies, in Mexico, in the Bahamas. And you know, when you're 19, that's, you have no cares. Like that's, it was an amazing opportunity, but I realized that I needed to be back in New York to really figure out my next steps. And I am, was raised in the kind of family where education is very important. And um, very quickly I enrolled in NYU. So I was in the Gallatin School of Individual, the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which means that you can create your own major. Um, it's the smallest school at NYU, but it allows you to navigate within the six or seven schools that the university has and really take what, what you want. Um, so my major was comparative literature, voice, and theater. Um, when I was still a senior, I was just about to graduate. I think I was like one, one, maybe four credits short of graduating, but they still let me attend the graduation. But I had auditioned for the Actors Studio, their master's program, just really on a whim. I had read about it in the New York Times. And I called them, I remember this, I called them and I, I, I asked them if I could be seen for an audition. And they're like, well, we had a, there was a prior application process. I was like, yeah, 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 I know. But, but can I just come? And, and I, they're like, well, if there's an opening, maybe at the end of the day. And there was. So I did a monologue for them. And my, the panel was, I believe it was James Lipton and um, Ellen Burstyn and Estelle Parsons. And maybe it was Paul Newman. I think so. But they offered me a scholarship. And, and I went. So I was finishing NYU and I was in this master's program <laughs> studying acting. But again, as we relate back to sound, there was an exercise that we did. This was the Stanislavski method, um, a, tech, a, te a technique of acting training. And there was an exercise called the song and dance exercise. So you had to sing in one rhythm and move the body in another. And they could not, they had to be completely different, which really was, you know, I see how I use that skill now as a sound practitioner playing several instruments at once 
you know, you could be playing the bowls and percussion, you know, but they're different tempos. But that was a really good exercise, learning how to coordinate sound. It was also during that time that um, I met my mentor who I had auditioned for. He was 95 years old at the time, a Tin Pan Alley songwriter who wrote for Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughan, Billy Eckstein. His name was Bernard Bierman. And I had auditioned for him and he liked the sound of my voice. And we began to go into the studio and record demos of his music. And it literally was a drawer of music that had been sitting untouched for 60 years. And he allowed me to go through the music and choose the songs I liked. We would demo them. And then it gradually became this full-scale project, a full-scale recording, which was my first release. And right away, like right out of the gate that was played on jazz radio and on NPR. And I think people really liked the human interest story, you know, that here's this 95 year old man and this really is his swan song working with this younger person singing old music, but making it sound new. And that was such a joy and opened my eyes to composing and producing music um, because he allowed me to do that with these recordings. So the way I worked was very much like an actor that I would find the story in the lyric and then decide what instruments I felt best illuminated that story. What texture did the instrument bring? You know, was the story about love or loss or heartbreak? What would bring that to the foreground best? Is it a saxophone? Is it a flute? Is it a banjo? You know, and pairing different instruments with each with other ones and hiring musicians. And I mean, that was really sort of baptism by fire in terms of producing music and creating music, but it allowed me that chance to have that foundation of now having an album released into the world. Um, yeah. Um, is that when, um, you know, your, your jazz career really took off? Yes, 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 yes. Um, because I was being played on the radio and meeting a lot of musicians, I was invited to sing with some of the jazz legends, Harold Mayburn, fabulous pianist that had worked with Miles Davis and Betty Carter, um, he invited me to sing with him. I got to sing with the saxophonist, Jimmy Heath, with George Coleman. I worked with Howard, Howard Alden, a wonderful guitar player. I mean, really some of the best in the business as teachers 
um, and champions for me, you know, real cheerleaders. Um, and that was such an honor. But yeah, definitely baptism by fire. <laughs> because suddenly, you know, then you're getting calls for jazz gigs and you're the front, you're the, you're, you're heading the band, you're fronting the band. And, you know, now it's the Michelle Perret quintet or it, it's just, it happened very quickly. And, you know, and then there was subsequent label interest and, you know, you go through that whole scary slope of trying to appease how people want to see you in terms of marketing and labels. And um, what happened was my father died very suddenly at age 56. He had a massive heart attack and without warning, he was in excellent shape. So it was very unexpected. He was playing tennis. And at the end of the match, he fell backwards and died on the court. And being faced with that as a young person, tremendous. And it, it, it was very difficult to focus on anything but healing. And most, most, most of all, my mother because she had lost her partner that she had been with since she was 14 years old. And shortly after she became very sick, um, which is what grief does. Grief, profound grief does to the body. Um, she started to develop dementia at a very early age at around 50 and battled it for almost 20 years. But navigating death, you know, navigating impending death of yet another parent, I needed to find a way to help me cope. And I had read about sound therapy and gong baths and I attended my first session and walked away completely changed from such a profound experience I can st I can tell that you still feel that a little bit what yeah. do you have words to, to kind of describe that first experience Mike Tamburo <laughs> It was, it was one of the first, um, yeah, but I, I just, it gave me, I left so calm and centered and had a sense of purpose, which was how could I bring this work to my mother? How could I help her? Because just after one session, the change within me was so tremendous and now to think of somebody with dementia, grieving with dementia. So I set it out, I set out to study for five years. I made that my mission to study this work with as many people as I could 
and with many of the greats. And that took me to Poland to study with um, Tom Saltron and Abby, his wife at Tone of Life. I studied with Fabian Maman in Switzerland, who's really the grandfather of this movement, sound therapy. Um, I studied with David Gibson at the Globe Institute in San Francisco. And I did the year program with Alexander Tanus at the Open Center. I was also at the same time studying um, integrative thanatology at the Open Center with the intention of playing for people at the end of life, figuring out how I could work with my mother to help her transition. And literally within the first two months of that program, my mother was in the hospital with two weeks to live. So I had remember I had ordered my first singing bowls and I set them all up in her room. I set, made a sound temple in her room, candles, electric candles, not live candles in a hospital. Um, the bowls, my gongs, and I played for her day and night for two weeks. Um, and I really saw how that work permeated the palliative care floor of Mount Sinai Hospital because the doctors heard about it, the doctors, the nurses, the aides, and they would actually ask if they could come and sit in the room while I was playing. And take all of absorbing all of that and I'm watching them as I'm playing seeing them you know process it go through their own emotions shed tears get refueled and then go back out onto the floor and deal with the dying I mean that was the most incredible thing to to witness and to be part of and really play for my mother and learn about very quickly the end of life, the stages of dying. I had a wonderful teacher who I'm so grateful for. Her name is Jean Denny, and she was the head of this program. Um, the Art of Dying Institute. She gave me so much comfort, advice, really was my rock, so unselfishly and present for me during that time. And I would just really stay so close to my mother, watching her breathe and you know, it was her wish to not be hooked up on anything artificial. She wanted to die naturally. So really hearing, you know, her struggling for breath and how the body starts to shut down and also not being attached. You know, that's one thing when you're working with the dying. And it's such a hard instinct to fight when you're when it's your parent, but it's fighting the urge to touch them 
you know, because they're trying to disconnect. They're trying to go to the next realm. And every time you're clinging to them, touching them, you're bringing them back down. And that was something I learned from my teacher, Jean. So I remember the last day of my mother's life, I was with her, just her. It was just her and I. I'm so grateful to have been there um, and that she allowed me to be there to, to experience that. But I had, there's something that's called the death rattle. And you hear that in the breathing. And I remember it becoming so clear to me that this, the moment was coming. And I got up and I got my alchemy bowl. And I started playing, like rooting her on, helping her get over the finish line, you know, just really playing. And I remember thinking, I have to get her last breath. And I put my phone on her chest, pressed record and I kept playing and singing and it was like three breaths a minute then it was two breaths a minute then the exhale and I kept playing so they said that once the heart stops the brain is still firing we're still responding to auditory the auditory sense so for at least 15 minutes, the brain is still processing what it's hearing. So I kept that going for at least 15 minutes after, you know, watching her and thinking, you know, I wanted to see something. I wanted to see, was there a spirit? Was there something, you know, because you read about these things, but there wasn't. It was just a very gentle, peaceful ending, you know, in the ceremonial aspect of, of it for me then washing her body and, you know, anointing her with oils and continuing to sing to her and wrapping her and then leaving. And I remember it was the day before Thanksgiving. It was the afternoon, a beautiful, crisp fall day. And when I got home, I stood on my little terrace overlooking the Hudson River. And the sun came out and it was shining right on me. And I remember this feeling like I had this deep connection with her and I could almost hear her and feel her, like her gratitude, thanking me. And I could feel how happy she was, truly. And how happy, it was like climbing to the top of Mount Everest and making it and, and just having accomplished the most incredible transformation, transformational experience. I mean, I was so happy. I didn't cry. And that also influences my work now. You know, because when you're working with the dying, it's, you're working with what is unseen. Like there definitely is something around you. There's a dialogue around you. 
I wasn't able to see it. I could hear it. You hear it. It's like this omniscient force that informs you how to work with them, how to work with the person that's dying. And I find now even working as a sound therapist, um, there's a, a way of working with clients where I'm still feeling that same energy. And I think it's something that the reason I don't work virtually because of that energy component, I have to be able to read that energy component or I'm no use. You know, then it's just performance. But to really work with one independently, it's the space just above the physical body. It's the etheric body where all the information is around the etheric body, but it's learning and beginning to understand how to un uncode that, decode that, decode that space. Um, yeah, there are very mystical things that happen in that space and that I found happen consistently in sessions when I'm working with people um, my goal, because originally I'd wanted to work with people at the end of life, but I realized, I think after losing both parents, it takes a very special kind of person to truly work within that realm for a living. I mean, I think I could do it on special with special people, you know, special situations, but to do that as a living it is so hard emotionally. And you have to also be okay with your clients dying. And that's a rough thing to navigate. Some people are so brilliant at it and I give them so much credit. But I realized that, that that isn't where I feel called right now. After my mother had passed, I received a call from Mount Sinai Hospital. And they asked me if I wanted to continue working on the palliative care floor for the dying. And at the time, I was not in the frame of mind to accept that. I mean, just... There are too many triggers for me having lost a parent. So I took myself to Turks and Caicos, which is where I had lived when I was 19, when I was working as a choreographer. But that was always my special place for rerouting and you know, to be at one with the ocean, to be in that beautiful environment. And I brought some of my instruments with me and I really had the intention of just healing and playing for myself. And I would go every day to the ocean and play my bowls and my hand held gong to, to clear myself of all the, the muck, the grief. And gradually I found that people started sitting 
very close to me and wanted to be as close to the music, as close to the sounds, not the music. And before I knew it, you know, there was a crowd of five, then there was a crowd of 20, and then there was a crowd. And, and this became, I guess it, you know, <laughs> I had a certain spot at the beach that I'd always be at, and that was my special spot. But what I realized was Turks had just experienced a brutal hurricane. So there was so much destruction across the island and people were hurting, people were broken, their house homes were destroyed and they needed this work as much as I did. They needed to heal. And before long, there was a group of expats that had arranged for me to play a concert a healing concert in this beautiful meditation pavilion that was somebody's, it was privately owned. It was on somebody's property. And I played this and like half, like so many people came to this concert. And it was really the first time I had performed with these instruments, singing songs that, I loved jazz standards, you know, my, the repertoire that I grew up with and that I sang as a jazz singer, I was now interpreting using the alchemy crystal singing bowls as my harmonic accompaniment. And I was allowed a freedom of expression that I didn't feel before with anything else because I could take my time. It was, it was what happens in the space with these bowls um, and how they frame the voice, you know, and really learning how to work with these instruments in a way that nobody's done before. Um, I don't sing mantras. I don't sing chants. I sing standards from the great American songbook. I sing pop songs, classic pop songs. So that's my form of meditation in a language that I understand, in a language that is comforting to me. Yeah. Yeah, and what do you feel shifted or what did you feel you had to shift in those particular songs that you probably had sung as as standards for years yeah. what was it behind it maybe the intention the energy behind it that you knew I could I can shift the flow of this I don't have to worry about timing or like can right. you explain right what the difference is that shifted difference is is that so it's basically you're you you I sing rubato there is not another instrument that is keeping tempo. Um, but what I love about it is I'm finding the story in these songs, which I can transmit as a form of mantra. I can give someone a message of hope. I can give someone a message of 
compassion or something to ponder. Like, for example, the song, Here Comes the Sun, the Beatles song, Here Comes the Sun. Without the component of groove, without the component, the, the tempo, taking it out of tempo, it becomes a completely different animal. But do you ever think of what is the heart of that song? If you have to dissect, what is the takeaway lyric of that song? In slowing it down and playing it this way, it became so clear. The song is, it's okay, little darling. It's all right, little darling. It's all right. Like, I'm like, wow, that really, that's Here Comes the Sun. And when I was working in Hawaii, I had um, designed the sound therapy program for a resort called Sensei, which is on the island of Lanai um, during the height of COVID. I had created this job and really took a gamble. I had, I, I, anyway, that's another story, but about the song is I would try this song out in sessions. And here, we, here are people that are traumatized from COVID. Everyone's traumatized. And singing this song, I would see the most unlikely people cry. You know, very straight-laced men coming in with their wives, probably being dragged into sessions by their wives because it's something they wouldn't normally do, right? But they're doing it together. And singing, closing my sessions with these songs, with these messages, and people just weeping. And I'm like, wow, this is powerful stuff. This is powerful because I understand the message. Like it's, I, these are songs that are so deeply rooted in me. I could sing them in any key, but working with the bowls you have, trying to figure out the harmonic component, the harmonic ratios, how do these bowls work together with the voice? How do these bowls frame the voice? Are you working with octaves? Are you playing the root? Are you playing a fifth? How does it frame the voice? Are you playing the same note that you're singing to extend the vocal line? But all of this has to be negotiated when you're arranging music for the bowls. Um, yeah. So what a, a nice... Um constant uh, composing or curiosity for you to keep exploring these songs and, and um, improvising and, and shifting them and transforming them. And, you know, what you mentioned there um, about um, maybe someone coming in, not even knowing why they're at a sound bath or sound journey. What do you think it is <laughs> about the bowls or the voice or these experiences that maybe somebody, nobody's been to one before? 
how does it get into our heart space? How does it, you know, just go so deeply and without us even knowing it's clearing emotions, we're, we're starting to well up or, you know, what, what do you think it is in particular about these type, types of experiences that allow that, that space? That's a really good question. I think that they're so, they're, they're, there's a rawness that gets directly to the heart. There's such a clarity with these instruments that they're not hiding behind the bravada of the person playing them. I mean, these instruments sound amazing on their own, regardless of who's well, that's, that's a, you have to have a certain level of skill to play these instruments. But even if you've never played, even if you're a child and you're playing a singing bowl for the first time, it's going to sound beautiful. You know, it's, it's later how you're combining it and how you're structuring it. There's such an honesty with these instruments that doesn't allow you to think because there isn't anything to compare it to. So that mental chatter doesn't happen. And it's so immediate how it's felt. Um, you're reminding me of, a, of when I had first brought the bowls to my mother when she was still alive. My very first experience with her and the bowls and she was in her wheelchair, you know, just sort of out of it in the throes of dementia. And I took my bowl and started playing and she perked up, looked at me, locked eyes with me immediately. And I'm like, I don't know what she's going to say. I'm like, who did I, who is she now? Who is she right now? And she had not spoken in three years. And I'm playing and she's smiling. She's beaming at me. She's like, the energy is everywhere. She looks at me and she goes, yes, yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, mama, you spoke, you spoke. Like she's articulating, she's communicating. So it's opening up some portal for that to happen. So that was that's when I began to really sing with the bowls and realize how, if that is open within her, then she's going to respond to songs she knows, which are these standards and lyrics that she knows. And that sort of created my whole purpose of working, purpose for working with these bowls. You know, it's, I could combine what I knew, what she knew and create something, something very different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you said something that I think you really hit the nail on the head there with, um, in particular, the, the spaciousness of these instruments, the, the space and the openness and the vastness that they can create, um, rather than something that's very timed and structured. Um, I think it does have that ability to take us out of the mind. And I think that might be the most important um, thing that we can do in our society right now is we're so thought and mind oriented and a lot of our stress comes from that. Yeah. 
that to in order to tap into our emotions or these other aspects of ourself um we have to kind of get out of our own way <laughs> our own thoughts and so yeah you really said something there that um i think that's it i think it's the simplicity it can create mm-hmm. space the silence um that we just don't allow most of the time yeah reminding me of um of oprah winfrey something she said I had the chance of playing for her in Maui, which was her first sound journey experience. But afterward, they interviewed her for her. um, They interviewed her and her comment was, it's like seashells in the brain. So you think about when you're listening to a seashell, what do you hear, right? It's that, but think of that in your brain, these bowls, these instruments, the gongs, I, I just thought that was very clever. It's, it's uh, yeah. So I like that. It, yeah, it's often really hard to find words after these experiences. So I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, that's really, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Well, yeah, speaking of that, and you know, getting to work with uh, people like her, um, a lot of the work you do, um, as far as I understand, is maybe like luxury resorts and spas. And like, how is that kind of, come about? Is it because of that very first experience you had where the crowd started coming? Um, uh, or like, how did you kind of go after that type of audience? And how was yeah. that unique to you? It allowed me to combine travel and sound and wellness. So those are two, three things I love um, from that very early experience as a teenager working with hotels. But Four Seasons, so I'm working with Four Seasons New York downtown now. I'm part of their resident healers team. Although I don't like that word. I don't, I don't consider myself a healer. Although other people may. I don't brand myself that way. I think it, the healing lies within oneself. And I'm just facilitating that process. Um, but four seasons. So at the time, it did not exist. I mean, creating this modality within the luxury wellness hotel did not exist. It did not exist. And when I think of in 2000, gosh, 2017, even it did not exist. I re- because I remember trying to stay in the West Indies and going down to every single hotel on the beach, trying to explain what I do. (laughs) I I felt like a traveling Avon lady. Like you're going from door to door to door to door and people don't understand it. They don't know what it is. They know they love it after you play for them, but they don't know how to market it. They don't know how to sell it to the layperson at at least at that time, 2017. I had one hotel there that took a gamble and brought me in. They actually sponsored my visa and allowed me to, to begin facilitating within their spa. But it was, it was a hard sell because people didn't, didn't know, they didn't know how to market it. Um, so the way people could experience it was in concerts, sound, sound meditation concerts, you know, which I did a few of those there. Um, 
But when I came, it was around the uh, 2018, um, Four Seasons had opened downtown and I live very close to the hotel. And it was my intuition. I had heard this in my head for my ear, go to the Four Seasons, go to the Four Seasons, during it. I was like, okay, okay. And I, I called and I, I spoke to Tara Cruz, such an amazing spot director and true thought leader because she created the resident healers team of bringing in women that women on a team of unique with unique offerings. And I had played for Tara and right on the spot, <laughs> crying, she, she responded and hired me. And I became part of this team and really had to build this offering within a very traditional model. And I think COVID has truly helped this profession because people understand, people are more aware. It's, it's infiltrated our society, sound, whatever you call it, sound healing, sound therapy, sound meditation. It's now part of the popular culture at such a degree that there are so many practitioners now, um, which is exciting, but also a little scary because it's a lot of people haven't done the work, you know, and it's not something you learn in a weekend. You're not a gong master in two days. You're not, you know, it's 20 years I've been a musician, um, over 20 years. And there are many hats that you have to wear calling yourself a sound practitioner. You know, not only are you a business person, having to also be your own booking agent, your own publicist, but you're having to be a therapist in a way, not just a sound therapist, but you're having to work from a psychological perspective with clients. You're working with clients that may have trauma, that may have physical ailments, disease. So you're working with the physical body. You have to have an understanding of the physical body of the energy meridians in the body, how to work with that. You know, it's not just banging instruments and fashioning a term healer, wearing a costume and it becomes kind of like a circus act. And that's a little frightening. I, yeah. I yeah. So I, I'm really glad you said that. And you're right, it's, it's a responsibility right? Whether we're calling it healing therapy, any of those words. Yeah. It's so multifaceted. And in fact, we need to consider that we're always learning. There's so much to know. There's so much to know. And we're all, we're always in training, even 20, if we've been doing it 20 years. Right. And so never enough and never stops. It I never think stops. that's the biggest lesson for people getting into this is that's great. If you've taken a one day class, but go to the next one, go to the next, you know, keep learning and experiencing and, and integrating and getting feedback from the people you're working with. Um, because yeah, I mean, unfortunately in this field, people might go 
to a sound journey and have a bad experience. Mm. And maybe it's just because they didn't resonate with it. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think you have a really good point there with um, just, you know, getting something, get going to buy a bowl and, and just playing it and as just loudly as possible. You know, that the louder you play the frequency, the more healing it's going to come across or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? And, yeah. and just even not knowing how your instruments relate to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are people that go and spend all of this money and they have the most amazing instruments, but then you hear them play and you're like, but you're missing stuff. Like you're not weaving. There's no integration of how these, how the body is going to respond in a session. I mean, you really have to have, you have to be cognizant of your own client's breath. Mm-hmm. Are they tensing up? Are you playing too close to their head? Are they, and you can't just play with abandon. It it doesn't work. It's it's. I mean, I I find that that's even trauma inducing for me sometimes mm-hmm. to be in loud percussive rooms, and it's just. And I do this for a living, you know. It's knowing people's triggers, so you know, in working one on one with people, it's so important to have that 10 or 15 minutes where you're doing an intake so you know what you're dealing with and you know knowing how to close the session your client could be completely in tears falling apart are you just going to send them off into the street in a city like new york you know it's so there are many skills that are called into play to make this seamless and nurturing right Yeah, you're so right. I mean, you're an artist, you're an accountant, you're, (laughs) you're, you know, there's all the aspects to it. You're a mentor, you're a coach, you know. Um, That's right. That's right. You're a composer. Right. And I think, yeah. And I think everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and to lean into your strengths, but also lean into your weaknesses. You know, what, what do you need to fill? What do you need more of? Because everybody does have their specialty. And that's why so far, I think, um, Everybody has their own unique way and um, you're going to have the right people for you and they're going to be the right people, you know, to come to see you. Right. Um, That I don't feel that like there's too many or there's competition or things like that. Um, But there definitely is starting to be that kind of, um, you know, weekend master sound healer type mindset that, yeah, I think we need to be aware of and careful of and, um, is there anything we can do about it? That's a really good question. Not necessarily. We can certainly try to help inform people what they might experience in a sound journey. Um, and that not everyone you go to is the same. Right. You know, right. but it's also educating the consumer. You know, educating why people get are getting paid, why why there are different pay rates. For practitioners what instruments are people using you know you're bringing a hundred thousand dollars of instruments to a gig it's not the same as somebody that's bringing two himalayan bowls in a yoga studio like it's just it, it's a different tier of practitioner and i mean there's room for everyone like you said but you know the the feeling of like never knowing enough 
like even when you when I was so honored when you asked me to be on this podcast but I thought you know my first feeling was I don't know anything <laughs> I don't know anything what do I know it's like because in our you know we'll never know enough like there's so much more to learn there's so much more um however that's what keeps it us invested in it is it's a passion and you want to keep learning so that's a good thing for all of you know yeah well speaking of that actually let's let's get to you know um perhaps what you're really curious or kind of involved in now what's like really being manifested right now but also what are you dreaming forth what are you excited about um and kind of see see coming in your future Yes, I would love to bring this work to concert halls. I would love to bring it to that level of performance and healing on a grand scale. Um, yeah, also, I recently was invited to be part of the development committee for the Grammy-winning Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to bring in, in the classical world, um, combining instruments and bringing elements of wellness into the classical world into chamber music settings, orchestral settings. Um, there is a piece of music, that's, this is my long-term goal, which I'm hacking away at. It's going to take, it's like a five-year plan. That's how long it's going to take because this music is so complicated of how will classical music translate to bowls, working with bowls and vocalese. So one piece of music that I want to figure out is Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings as vocalese with bowls. Um, because there are no limits to where it can go using harmony. Um, what else? I. I have an album that I'm finishing up that's taking way too long. <laughs> that's um, standards, my favorite standards um, with beautiful messages that were passed down to me from the mentors and from both of my parents. Um, so it's just bowls and voice, alchemy bowls and voice. Um, I'm having to figure out how to mix it now, which is, not an easy thing because so much can get lost in the mix. Um, what else? Um, I was invited to back to Hawaii um, in the winter to work with a free jazz ensemble, a free jazz called Red Nova. Um, and it's with William, well, a, a guest, another guest will be William Parker, who's the upright bassist, great jazz player. Um, but more in the healing jazz, like it's, he does a lot of healing music. Um, so that's exciting. Um, and that's with Peter Shainlin. That's his group. 
um, Red Nova in Oahu. Another long-term goal, which I would love to just experiment with is working in the neonatal unit with premature babies. So I myself was premature almost three months and spent the first couple of months of my life in an incubator. Um, I wanna know what are the babies hearing? How changing what they're hearing, how will that affect their growth rate? And I just really want, I don't know how that will happen, um, but it's been a fascination. I, I love also working with children um, and seeing how they light up when they learn about these instruments and sort of envisioning how that would be if I could be a mentor to a young child and teach them everything I know. How would that look in 20 years? Who would this child be? You know, that's just something I think about. There's so many of these little kids on, on uh, Instagram and TikTok that are so brilliantly musical. I saw this little baby, this Russian baby that was two months old, just like playing the piano. And I thought, oh my gosh, how would they be with singing bowls or gongs? Just so much potential. That makes me so excited to think about where it could go. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. I mean, really exciting stuff. And gosh, and I would say if anybody can merge the world of classical and of course the the alchemy, the sonic alchemy, it would be you. So I see that happening. Precisely. I see it. Well, I see it all happening, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And, and absolutely. And these other things that you're so passionate about working with children or um, the neonatal, it's just, yeah, there's so many things that we want to do. There's so many passions and I think they'll come forth when they're supposed to. Tell you me know, what you want to do. Tell me what you want to do. I want to hear. Oh, what well, yeah. Well, I am also working on an album that's taking way too long, years and years and years um, and a book. And um, yeah, it's just um, having time be your friend rather than a pressure, mm. as I've found is like the best way to work with things that you really want to accomplish and you can't see how you're just going to be able to do it. Um, time is a pressure and just allowing it to be a freedom is probably the Those most helpful. And, and honestly, the biggest lesson of getting into this work for me because I was, you know, have a very academic um, background and a very scheduled, especially as a high school teacher, a very, you know, everything is, is time is, is, you know, so that's been the biggest freedom for me getting into this work is sometimes I just lose time and it's a beautiful feeling. But you're <laughs> such a great musician. And we were talking about this earlier when the first gong summit happened in 2019, you were sitting behind me. And we didn't get the chance to talk, but you made an impression on me because there was an exercise that was given to the group where we broke up into small groups and we had to improvise. And I remember listening to what you were playing and thinking, she's really good. Like it really, your musicality mm. struck me, really made an impression. And I remember thinking, I have to talk to her. I have to talk to her. 
because it was so different. It was so unique mm. you were doing with the gong and your musicality sh like totally sh was shining. So oh. that was really beautiful to see that. Yeah. Thank and you. Really strong impression. Thank you. And I think, and that's another big message of, of this sound path is, is curiosity, mm. um, right? And playfulness. And, um, and I think that's a lot of what you found too from, I mean, a very trained background. Sometimes you just have to let go. You, get your own, you can get in your own way, right? Yeah. But yeah. I think about something Michael Bettine, who I love his mm -hmm. playing, but the exercises he gave himself just in figuring stuff out, challenging yourself, for example, playing big gongs with small mallets or playing small gongs with big mallets and trying to find that balance. And that's really to make it work. And yeah, so many things you could do. Yeah. Yeah. The instruments are our teachers for sure. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so many great teachers are out there. Yeah. With their yeah. own ways of working. Mm -hmm. It's, it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to learn from them while they're still here. That's right. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. some of them are so vastly different. And I think it's good to have both sides to make your own, to find out what resonates with you. Right. Make it your own. Right. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because mm. we all are aiming for the same thing, and that's transformation, right? Yeah. And um, transformation, um, solace, mm -hmm. you know, that this sense of calm and and trusting ourselves, right? There's an empowerment piece of this that. Um, we can learn from so many people and have all these different perspectives and thank goodness for that. But, um, we already know everything. We already have all the answers, don't we? We just need to trust ourselves in that, in that space, in that space we were talking about above mm -hmm. the body. <laughs> yep. Above the physical body. Yeah. The ethereal. Yeah. yeah. Where the intuition is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing I would advise people getting into this field is sometimes it, you know, there's, there's protocols, there's techniques It can get, actually, some of it can get really stuck in our minds about, am I doing this right? What am I doing? And, um, but yeah, huge piece of this, especially if you aren't a musician, uh, right. is intuition. Yeah. Intuition and intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If it's done with love. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable and, and sharing your story. And um, I would say, I, I don't, maybe not challenges in life, but learning lessons in life that have, you know, brought to you to where you are now. I mean, everything is one step. Everything leads us to where we're supposed to be. Right. Um, and it's pretty a magical journey that you've been on. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. This was fun. Good. So Good. You. Thank mm. you. Thank wow. you so much. <laughs> okay.
against the world Sometimes it feels like You and me against the world When all the others turn their backs circus came to town and you were frightened by the clowns wasn't it nice to be around someone that you knew someone who was big and strong Looking out for you and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like you and me against the world, and for all the times we've cried. Felt the odds were on our side. And when one of us is gone, and one of us is left to carry on, well, then remembering will have to do our memories alone will get us through think about the days of me and you Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. And keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned.